I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Spider-Man No Way Home. Ever since I got bit by that spider, I've only had one week where my life has felt normal. That was when you found out. Watch that spell where you wanted everyone to forget the Peter Parker Spider-Man. We started getting some visitors. From every universe. Hello, Peter. I'm sorry, what was your name again? Dr. Otto Octavius. <laughs> Wait, no, seriously, what's your actual name? There are others out there. We need to send them back. So, Scooby-Doo this crap. You know, all this is kind of your mess. I know a couple of magic words myself, starting with the word please. Please, Scooby-Doo this crap. You're flying out into the darkness to fight ghosts. What do you mean? They all die fighting Spider-Man. It's their fate. I'm sorry, kid. Yeah, me too. Don't. Look, there has to be another way. There isn't. They're a danger to our universe. You're not gonna take this away from me. Peter. You're struggling. Damn everything you want while the world tries to make you choose. This is all my fault. I can't save everyone. This is a big one, so let's proceed apace and see if we can do justice to this monumental juggling act of a movie. Now we've assembled a whole spider team tonight. We've got Brendan Agnew of Synapse. Greetings. Mackenzie Eastrom. Hello. And Nathan Eastrom. Hello. Of Rainbow Connection, the Muppets podcast, and is it Video Game, the movie, the podcast? Yes. <laughs> Name Chaibiti from our Discord. Hello, Name. Hello. And Austin Wilden of Wits Writing. Hey. But uh, let's start with our audiences before we get into anything else, because something quite extraordinary happened the first time I saw this on opening night. Didn't happen when we saw it just now with Sharon and Willow in tow. My audience cheered. They clapped multiple times. They were having a whale of a time and were extremely pleased with every new treat we were given. British audiences don't clap. It's unseemly. We never want to be seen to be enthusiastic unless there's a soccer ball involved. 
or when someone drops a load of plates in the kitchen. That's pretty much the only time we're allowed to go, yes, about anything. There was a little a sports bit ball. of cheering today. A teeny... A little bit you, at a couple of moments. This one was... This was way more yeah. like... And we also It was had like a, a theatre audience. Yeah, and we also had a chunk of kids who decided that uh, a food fight was the best way to celebrate what was going oh, on. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we got fucking scumbags in our second audience who were just wittering away. There were people taking photographs of the screen. There were people sniggering. Sharon was like, shut up, at yeah, one point. Yeah, it could be because they were throwing bags of popcorn at each oh, other. Oh, little fuckers. And, uh, and I definitely heard during incredibly sad bits... <laughs> And, oh my god, just like a bunch of selfish toddlers. However, the first lot were great. Like, they, they were reacting to stuff like, when Matt Murdock turned up, the, there was like a ripple effect. I felt like everyone, it's just a little thing, Matt Murdock's there. I was like, oh my god, he's there. I, I did that, but it was just me. Yeah, I felt a little, a blipple, if you will. So, uh, everybody else, did you have special unusual audiences, or what? I don't think there was a single person in there not wearing some form of Spider-Man paraphernalia. Oh, nice. That's how like, to see it. Including one guy just in a full Spider-Man suit, and <laughs> That's the energy in that theater was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Mackenzie? We also had a fantastic crowd with uh, appropriate cheers and hoots and hollers at the correct moments, and several adorable children in adorable spider outfits. Oh, nice. Uh, Brendan? Yeah, children no. always make movies like this more enjoyable in the theater. Yeah, you could uh, you could tell the, like, vast numbers of people in the audience who were at the age to have Raimi's movies really land on them, mm. and who had brought their own kids, and there were um, there were, for both of the showings that I went to, there were just huge numbers of like, oh yeah, that's who those people are. The uh, youngest person in my theater was high school, and then the oldest, I would say probably not even older than 30. Uh, and it was pretty packed, and it felt like some kind of club that we were all in. Like, we got there, most of us, really early. Everybody was, like, talking to each other, like, who's your favorite Spider-Man, this kind of thing. Hmm. And so I was really expecting there to be lots of cheering and clapping and stuff, but they just kind of let the movie play. And uh, hmm. there were some whispers every once in a while, but it was... Wrapped attention. That's still good, yeah. though. Like, that's mm-hmm. way better than our sec- my second audience. Okay, so, uh, this is the comic book related question, and I bring it in because I've been thinking about it uh, since seeing the movie for the first time. What was One More Day, and why did people hate it? Anyone want to feel that one? Uh, mm. So, One More Day is the mistaken assumption that people only engage with Peter Parker when he's perpetually, like, 22 years old and unable to progress, Uh. and Marvel making one of their best writers reset his emotional continuity to that point, in spite of the fact of this writer having done a lot of fun growth with the character over the past couple years. I read the whole of that J. Michael Straczynski run. It was uh, it started when he, around about the time, just before he joined the New Avengers in the early 2000s and uh, ran, I think, up to... The, did, did, did Straczynski carry on writing after that, or was that then handed over uh, to Dan no. After that, it went to what was known at the time as the Spidey Brain Trust, which mm. was a group of three or four writers, Dan Slott and Mark Wade were among them. Mm-hmm. And it was called the Brand New Day Era, which is actually around the time when I started reading comics regularly. Oh, so wow. despite how we got there, there was actually some pretty good stuff in there with the creative teams like all working off of each other. Right. 
So it yeah, was the, the uh, stories that followed were good. Okay, so but the actual way they rebooted, what was this, and why do people hate it? Oh, Peter Parker made a deal with the devil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is this why everyone keeps going? I reckon WandaVision, it's all about Mephisto. I reckon Hawkeye, it's all about Mephisto. I reckon Loki, it's all about Mephisto. You know, this is the one story where they could have brought Mephisto in. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and yet they didn't. Civil War occurred in the MCU, uh, sorry, in the Marvel comic universe 616, and it went a lot worse and longer and especially bad for Peter because he actively revealed on purpose thanks to Stark telling him I will protect you uh, you know he revealed I am Peter Parker to the world voluntarily making J. Jonah Jameson faint and then after a while he began to realize oh Steve actually has a point about his personal freedom side of this uh, particular Mark Millar penned overarching story and so he switched sides and then he lost Tony Stark's protection and ended up living in a Motel 6 with uh, Mary Jane and Aunt May and then Aunt May got shot by a sniper and was dying and to save her Peter strikes a deal with the Marvel version of the devil to save May. Mary Jane quite rightly says, maybe May's had her time, she's lived a good life. May is in a coma on a hospital bed, so can't weigh in on the situation. But, let's face it, there's no way May would want her life traded for MJ and Peter's future. At every step of the way in this four-issue miniseries, Everyone, including Doctor Strange, keeps telling Peter, this is not the way of things. And Peter counters, if she died of natural causes, like a heart attack, her body just giving out, that would be a death he could accept. But May is dying very rapidly from a bullet that was meant for him. And he can't let that happen. The payment for this is that Mephisto gets Peter Parker and Mary Jane's love. He gets their marriage it undoes that long-term relationship. Mary Jane demands a caveat that Peter's new life be a happy one in exchange for what she hadn't told him. She was pregnant, most likely with at least a variation of May Mayday Parker, the amazing Spider-Girl, a future hero who will now potentially never exist. And the way Straczynski writes it, Mephisto gets their emotional pain. He hears their souls crying out. That's his payment. It's so bitter. And you can definitely see there is, like, they started with that as the basis of this. But yes, it's but not what, bad. Yeah. No, it is not that. <laughs> what they did appear to draw from from this run was that Peter gets stuck in the bargaining stage of grief. In No Way Home, his journey is to get to acceptance. Um, originally, when we first saw the trailer, I was looking at Doctor Strange and going, he is being awfully blasé with messing with the whole timeline. Is that Mephisto in disguise? And that would have been a shitty reveal, but like, I knew there was something. Around about that time, the What If episode on Doctor Strange came out, and I was like, maybe it's the other Doctor Strange. And Marvel were like, put a pin in that. To understand why things have become so dire for this version of Peter, first of all we have to examine what is heaped on Peter and why it feels different to how it might have felt maybe 20 years ago. How specifically would this apply to younger kids in particular? Social well, media. Mm. Yeah. The, the unending horror of not being able to ever 
have a single moment where people won't have their eyes on you mm. and not know every single other person you interact with and how that can affect them. It's when drones can fly outside of your windows mm. all of the time, it's a little bit different. It effectively turns people into paparazzis. So you can't escape from the 90s equivalent of uh, you know, a bunch of uh, journalists hounding you for a scoop. Yeah, a cameraman can only run so fast when the thing he's carrying is half the size of the van who drove it here in. Fuck that. You know at the end of John Wick 2, when everyone gets informed that John Wick's bounty is now on, and it will appear that most people in the world are bounty hunters? <laughs> this feels like it's, it's that level of suddenly everyone gives a shit who Spider-Man was and they are furious that he killed their favorite hero, Mysterio. Okay, now, only uh, half of them are <laughs> furious at him. True. Apparently half of them are all totally fine with the theoretical murder. Hmm. <laughs> or I'm assuming they were like, we, we believe that Mysterio was making shit up or you didn't actually kill him or something, a.k.a. the truth. Yes, but yeah. the general uh, public doesn't have any reason to trust that narrative either. I mean, we kind of need John Cena from uh, Bumblebee to turn up and say, they literally call themselves Decepticons. That doesn't set off any red flags. Enough! Flashback with me, if you will, to late 2018, the year of Spider-Man Infinity War, Spider-Verse, and the Spider-Man game on PlayStation 4. If you remember our show on that, we were a little un on, on edge that J. Jonah Jameson was effectively being positioned as Alex Jones. Just like a punchline. Like, this guy's a scumbag, non-journalist, a sensationalist, hating Spider-Man performatively in order to hock his ridiculous bone marrow supplements or something. Two-thirds of his funding reportedly comes from selling his products, and there are a lot of them. And the reason I know that is we bought a whole bunch. Now, let, let, me, let me break them down for you. There is a super male vitality, a super female vitality, Wake Up America Patriot Blend Coffee, Lung Cleanse, Brain Force Plus, uh, something called DNA Force that costs $120 a bottle, and Child Ease, a, a herbal blend uh, which, according to InfoWars, is designed to soothe the mind and bodies of children, which is a profoundly creepy phrase. <laughs> And then there is Caveman True Paleo Formula with Bone Broth, a chocolate-flavoured drink mix made from bee pollen, stevia, and the dust of chicken skeletons. Now, according to InfoWars, it is one of the most popular new health trend in the world today. And by the look on Jones's face, it tastes exactly as good as it sounds. You pour that in on a couple of ice cubes, and folks, it tastes, when it's creamy and thick, I think better than Ovaltine, and it has got all the bone broth and so much more. This is why the ancients, they believe, were, had such better bones, were so much healthier. You can look it up. This, you could freeze this, and this would be better than, like, bluebell chocolate ice cream. <laughs> Side effects may include paranoia, bigotry, delusions of grandeur, rationalizing genocide, and insanity. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Turn the friggin' frogs gay. Serious crap. Gay. Frogs, friggin' frogs. And I was kind of thrown sideways with how easily this fit with the J.K. Simmons version of J. Jonah Jameson. I was like, honestly, these days, if you're acting like Spider-Man's a menace, you are Alex Jones. I think the 
one of the things with J. Jonah Jameson's character that just hasn't translated super well over the years is mm. how his original issue with masked vigilantes is kind of a anybody who has a mask is hiding something about themselves mm. and quite directly tied to the KKK mm. in the United States. Nice. Whereas now... Well, masks have certainly gotten more politically complicated in the recent times. <laughs> uh, Anyone can wear the mask, damn it. Yeah. Everyone, Everyone should. <laughs> but even negating the last two years, as mm. everybody wishes they could, it's when you have a whole universe of heroes who are working together and have had like proven global efforts towards saving everybody's butts multiple times. Yeah. It's a little bit rich when you're specifically very mad at the one guy who's around yeah. your town. And Peter should honestly just go on Jimmy Kimmel and be like, Oh yeah, I was there when we kicked Thanos's ass and brought everyone back. I was there. I was brought back by the Avengers and I helped just so he can, you know, just sort of show the real version of uh, uh, of Peter Parker. But I, it, I've gotten used to Tom Holland's. Well, I immediately warmed to him back in 2016 in that first, the the first meeting with him and, and Tony, where he defined his character, and he has remained consistent since then. All right, I've run out of patience. Under Roos. Hey everyone. Uh, so it was a, a joy, but also utterly heartbreaking to watch him go through all of this. Although it's not worth noting, uh, the, the MCU are uh, consistently uh, uh, passed off as uh, just a bunch of toy commercials or, or, or the modern day equivalent, and uh, it, it's all you know. No, no directors allowed to do their thing. But John Watts is no slouch, and he's not just a yes man. You're thinking of Alan Taylor there. There's various long take handicam stuff that if Scorsese did it would be like oh this is the greatest like single shot in all of uh, cinema history there's some really complicated clever stuff that happens repeatedly two key moments are when May gently lets down happy at the beginning all the way up until the realization on the part of the entire apartment that there are helicopters outside filming them is all at least sold as one continuous take of roving handicam. And the very striking moment just before everything is ruined, when Peter starts to sense the goblin coming back in Happy's apartment, just with the piercing tone as everything starts to shift around him, it's really disconcerting. Powerful stuff and an excellent re-entrance for the goblin. It is his fanfare. Peter's spider sense going, this is really bad. Yeah, they, they managed to make that kind of like lighthearted and, and fun in terms of like privacy invasion, but there's a sort of a slow creeping of, of this is becoming an untenable situation. So when he does go to Strange and say, you know, I need to get this done, what Strange is dealing with here is, in his own words, brainwashing the entire world. I like the fact that Wong is now Sorcerer Supreme on, in Strange's terms, 
a technicality, but he isn't giving the role back to Strange. I like the fact that Strange, and this was brought up on the Discord, in his first movie became less selfish, but not less reckless. I didn't predict, and I should have done, regarding Peter and his journey in this third film, that the whole point is he's presented with this very uh, worrisome situation wherein he is erased from everyone's minds and loses all of those connections and rails against that. He tries to have everything and, and tries to decomplicate things and in, in those uh, terms recomplicates them and makes them so much worse. But he's not trying to have everything for selfish reasons. This was something that was done to him, something utterly despicable, life-ruining. It's not selfish to want that to go away. And, you know, it, it, it's a bungled spell, but ultimately when it comes down to it, he needs his support group. And there is a lot to be said about Spider-Man needing to have people there. In the same way that Superman needs to be Clark Kent, if you completely shut yourself off and you uh, pursue only a monastic existence with no people in your life, you lose track of why you're fighting to save people. And I think this feeds into what you were saying about how does this speak specifically to younger people these days and, and how is Tom Holland's Peter dealing with a level of, I would say, expectation that older Spider-Men did not necessarily have, mm. at least not in the way that it reflects in the real world. There is a a tone being levelled at young people at the moment which is holding them responsible for things they didn't do, expecting them to fix things they physically can't, and then when they try to achieve something everybody says no, not like that. In the same way that the uh, millennial generation have been abused by those above them uh, and told that they're the problem and they're the uh, cause of all of these issues, now we're turning on Gen Z. And that's specifically why whenever I see Generation X taking pot shots, I'm like, can we be the first generation not to do that, please? And then we'll let you live. Give them a fucking shot. Give them a chance. Yeah, let them breathe. There was a, a multi-generational feel to this one, especially with the three Spideys later on, where, where it felt like everyone was kind of like, they, they were recognizing what this version of Peter was doing and encouraging him in their own way, with their own viewpoint. So yeah, originally I was uh, thinking that, that Doctor Strange was being incredibly uh, blasé about you know, rewiring the entire world. But then when I, it gets to the end, and he's presenting Peter with this incredibly difficult decision. Over that time, he's told Peter about the scale. He understands the cosmic scale of this. There shouldn't really even be any hesitation or question uh, on Strange's part at that point. This is the right thing to do. But he has to kind of belabor that point just to really let it sink into the audience. Peter is giving up something really significant here. I think that's also part of what makes this different and an improvement on the one more day setup, which is that in the aftermath, Peter doesn't remember what he did. He doesn't remember what he gave up. Oof. Like they were so dedicated to being a full reset to zero for Bachelor Peter that he doesn't get to carry that sacrifice with him, which is so un-Spider-Man. Hmm. Peter Parker is going to carry that weight, to borrow a phrase. That's part of what the character's about. One of the key things that he's about, arguably, 
Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of Patrick Willem's Werner Herzog's Ant-Man, only it's not funny. In a world of gamma rays and radioactive spiders, and one man harnesses their power, one man sees through their compound eyes, but at what cost? He can lift things 100 times his body weight. But what does this achieve? But to increase his burden, his capacity for suffering. Scott Lang is a man who lives the realization of what we all know. Deep down as homo sapiens, that we are small. That beneath the order of our cities and the fictions of our reason, there is another world. A world of chaos, of overwhelming and collective murder, a place where monsters live. Yeah, yeah, that's literally what Peter's dealing with now. He's seen too much. And I've, I've seen plenty of people, uh, you know, quite rightly say, that's, this was a downer ending, I was disappointed, I just want Peter to be happy. If his story as Spider-Man is ongoing, he kind of can't be. The uh, Spider-Man film where he's happy at the end is Spider-Man 2, where uh, after making the pledge to Mary Jane, I will always be there, but no more than a friend, and, you know, disappointing her repeatedly throughout Spider-Man 2, the second film doesn't necessarily undo that decision and it even hints at you know bad things are going to happen as a result of that if you look at Kirsten Dunst's expression as she watches him swing away whooping and and really happy because he's finally got everything he wants he gets to be Spider-Man and he gets the girl the girl who makes him his spider powers work like they had shut off and they reactivate so he can go and save her he gets everything and then it's like yeah but this is not gonna go the way you hope it will isn't it about time somebody saved your life? We'll say something. Thank you, Mary Jane Watson. back to Mary Jane's troubled face. And then 
you can look at all of Spider-Man 3 as shit hits the fan. Eventually, all of these things crash into one another. It, it feels like this is a permanent writing fixture of Peter's life and has been since the 1960s, that he can't ever just have a happily ever after unless he stops being Spider-Man on a permanent basis. And it's really hard for Avengers to retire. How many Spider-Man movies or even Spider-Man stories have a happy ending? You know, it's basically Spider-Man 2. And then I think all of them have some, you know, some melancholy towards the end. Yeah. Spider-Verse, arguably Peter gets his shit back together in that. Yeah. Uh, But Miles meets a cute girl he likes and then gets separated her and her by a universe. So that's a little bit rough. Yeah. I think it's probably the happiest overall ending. Yeah. Yeah. To B. Parker dies? The original. Well, that Peter. Yeah, the uh, uh, um, Chris Pine version. Mm. Yeah. That's... That's just, just Peter, Peter Parker. Parker. Oh, okay, Peter B. Sorry. Parker's the one in sweatpants. Oh, gotcha. Oh, Peter. Gotcha. <laughs> See, that, that's the thing, though. I love Spider-Verse intensely. It's the best Spider-Man film. I think this is, to me at least, the best, by far, live-action Spider-Man film. But it's almost more about being Spider-Man. With Spider-Verse being anyone can be Spider-Man, this is the toll of that. This is what you must contend with. This is the hard side of being Spider-Man. Which is how Spider-Verse could have that happy, hopeful ending. It it also takes such full advantage of how Peter has been able to solve his problems before. This version of Peter is uniquely suited to this version of uh, One More Day because No Way Home is about not being able to fix things with magic rocks or a billionaire's money this this character has been able to rely on shortcuts and like you know you're looking at a kid who was bitten by a spider who like you know was tutored by a billionaire went to space died was resurrected before he graduated high school and so like of course he's going to be like oh well i guess a wizard could probably fix this Mm -hmm. as one of his first just like this is how i solve problems now Mm -hmm. and this is about how like uh, no that that doesn't always work and there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that are, you know, I'm sure unintentionally echoing a lot of our experiences about how you can't just press a button to make certain things go away. And, you know, the, the struggles of being separated from friends for extended periods of time that, that echo in, in unexpectedly potent ways. But, but the way this like wraps all of his previous experiences together as like roadblocks against him of like the way that you've handled things isn't going to work. And so we kind of get to see him sort of learn how to be Spider-Man again. And, uh, you know, speaking of Peter B. Parker, I'm I'm mildly just shocked that they managed to almost bring him back as two different characters to Mm. help him relearn how to Spider-Man. And you say he hasn't even graduated from high school yet. He never graduates from high school. He's got a GED textbook mm-hmm. in his box at the yep. end because his old mid- Midtown High doesn't remember he existed now. So if he wants to start carving out a place for himself in this new world, he really does have to start from scratch. Well, and he's got to learn how to deal with his like with himself. So much of what what the end of that movie is about is is it's not just like. It's not just a rehash of, you know, Spider-Man 1, which is a, you know, a very young, inexperienced man's, you know, oh, I can't, I can't be with so-and-so because of danger. Like, this is him going like, I've got to 
I really need to figure myself out and, and where I am and how I function as a person without being a toxic presence in people's lives. And, you know, there's still room to like circle back around to that. But, you know, you really do feel like, no, he's he's kind of got to take some him time and figure him out before he can healthily be around a bunch of other people. Mm. I think and, it's quite notable that this is the film where he is becoming an adult. This mm. is him mm-hmm. having to actually grow up, not just in the sense of taking responsibility and, you know, being a superhero and doing good things, but also in having to make big life choices and having to actually consider all of the options and having to step out on his own because he cannot necessarily just count on adults in his life to take care of problems for him anymore. His safety nets are all gone. He is always going to have responsibilities that are more immediately important than the people he loves in his life because he's always going to have to be available to save the world and if they don't know that he's spider-man that means they're always going to be disappointed by him and that's something that the raimi movies really explored Mm. uh, especially the uh first and second ones i noticed that while watching spider-man 2 he's a shitty peter parker and he's always late and he always disappoints people but he's a good spider-man he doesn't accidentally drop people because he was late He's giving 150% and being called lazy. But if they do know that he's Spider-Man, then that's almost worse because then they know that he's not always going to be there for them. So this movie does a really interesting thing by having that, having the consequences of being connected to Spider-Man be so much more uh concrete because now the whole world knows that he's spider-man and the people around him are being affected by it in ways that he couldn't possibly have uh, understood or predicted it's been a secret for so long now everything's blown up a moment that stood out to me uh thinking back on the movie after i'd seen it after the attempted spell and the great comedic bits related to the whole shortcuts thing where Strange is just exasperated that he was Peter's first idea instead of doing the more sensible, normal person thing of just pleading his case to the MIT rep. Hmm. That when he goes to talk to her after the fight with Doc Ock, he is very insistent on, no, I'm not arguing about this for me. I'm doing this for my friends. Don't worry about me. She's clearly not listening because her life was just saved by Spider-Man. It is a immense juggling act, like I said at the beginning. The amount of characters that get brought into this. I noted the second time when I was leaving quite what a deft use of the character board it was. They laid the pieces down and then they took the pieces off when the character was not needed right there. There were so many that entered and then left. It wasn't like... Daredevil's in. Now we've got to find something for Daredevil to do. They actually seem to have cut out potential court scenes that Matt Murdock could have been there representing Peter Parker in. Um, but they didn't push it beyond that that epic running time. And it doesn't ever really drag because there's so much going on and they've got to fit everyone in there. I've seen folks, again, justifiably lamenting the fact that there were not six villains all working together all at once uh, because... 
that's the Sinister Six. That's something from the comics. And we saw five villains or noted uh, supposed five villains in the trailer. So we're like, there's a hidden one. There's a sixth one we're not seeing. It has to be one of this Peter's villains, like the Vulture or more likely Mysterio. But now that we've seen the, the film, having one of this Peter's villains in there, would he would have nothing to do with what the rest of them actually face. The other, th there's two other major reasons. One, it's five because Sony want to keep the Sinister Six as a viable, marketable option moving forwards. They want to be able to present the public with, look, six Spider-Man villains, and not have people go, "Now nah, we've seen it," because then they can go, "Aha, that was only five Spider-Man villains, functionally the same, but <laughs> this is six. So. That's the big real reason why there weren't six. Because they could have foisted an extra one in there and just gone, see, we did the Sinister Six. Da-da! But they want that as a whole film, one assumes. Although having, uh, following, two, well, one not particularly well-appreciated version of Suicide Squad, one fantastic version of Birds of Prey that nobody saw, and one good version of Suicide Squad that also nobody saw... I'm not sure that there's actually that much money in a Sinister Six movie without Spider-Man in it. Also, now that we've seen the f them fighting, it's pretty obvious that Spidey on his own is not beating the Sinister Six. Like, even with three Spideys working together, plus they had Octavius's help, they could barely contain four. It amuses me, though, that if you look at the pattern of how Spider-Man villains function in Sam Raimi's movies, you mm. kind of have the sixth one with the the mentor figure who Peter pals around with, and then something supernatural goes wrong and they come into conflict. It's just, it's Doctor Strange. Yeah, it is Doctor Strange in this one case. Uh, but the other thing is that, and this is philosophical, they're not necessarily villains. They are, they have been positioned as villains in the past. They are people that Peter sees need help. And almost immediately, as soon as Peter quibbled with uh, Doctor Strange regarding uh, you know, what to do with them, Willow elbowed me and whispered, he wants to save them, that's because he's Spider-Man. Willow got what Spider-Man was about immediately. Willow, I, Willow was like jumping up and down in their seat when Electro turned up in Electro's classic colours. <laughs> And yes. when, strangely, when Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man uh, PD turned up, because like they've never particularly expressed any particular interest in him, but suddenly, somehow, this crossover made everything much more interesting. So, and I've put a bunch of pictures of uh, Willow as a, a very small child in various Spider-Man costumes and T-shirts. The first film we ever showed them was the night we brought them back from the hospital we all sat down exhausted and watched spider-man 3 on blu-ray not the best film by any means <laughs> but it does kind of mean that uh, arachnids are in their blood other people were like when eddie brock turns up at the end in that stinger other people were i actually some guy in my audience the first one shouted where were you and it's like, yeah, why wasn't Venom there? In the corner getting drunk, he's just said. <laughs> because. He's in Mexico, guys. Exactly Which as I said. in in character for this version of Eddie Brock. Exactly. Bingo. Venom shoehorned into a movie with a bunch of other villains before, and it didn't go well. Yeah. Bingo. <laughs> what I said on the uh, um, Let There Be Carnage. Actually, you know what? I'm going to play you the ending of this Patreon-exclusive After School Club podcast on Venom 2. Oh, you actually 
actually like this. The big stinger at the end is, there's a sting in this venom. Uh, Eddie is in his uh, motel room uh, on the beach uh, with Venom just watching TV and uh, saying, oh, you, you, you uh, keep secrets from me? And uh, uh, Venom's like, oh, I'm, I'm six million years old and, and you know, I've been across light years and light years worth of galaxy and uh, there's many, like, if I told you even one-tenth of it, your human brain would explode. And I'm like, ah, cool. I'd actually really like to hear from this version of Venom, like, because, like, that's a... a kind of a rowdy, chaotic Doctor Who. And like, could we start with that instead of ending with that? But I mean, yeah, there's there's potential food for the future. And, you know, there's there's all these things. And, and Eddie's like, I don't even understand what you mean. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, you're not even like one of those good assistants to the Doctor. You are a moron, Eddie, and I don't know what he sees in you anyway. Uh, and he's like, well, so what are you hiding from me? And then everything goes... And there's sort of bright flashy lights. And then they, boom, suddenly it's daylight. The place is much better appointed. And there's like neat little curled swans made out of the towels on the uh, bed. And it's daytime now suddenly. And they're like, what the... Fuck. And on the TV, there's a sort of a crazed bald newscaster, uh, or entertainment newscaster. I think they probably have to say uh, to say that because there's a clause in the content uh, when when it actually becomes not news at all, merely super right-wing conjuncture. And he's going, this menace, this Spider-Man! And it's J. Jonah Jameson, and he's giving the Tom Holland is Spider-Man speech. And there's a shot of Tom Holland's Spidey unmasked from what Mysterio's thing in Far From Home. But they have jumped to the MCU. And Eddie's like, what the fuck is going on? And Venom sees Peter on screen and goes, licks the TV screen and goes, Oh my God! That guy. And it's like, oh, he's met Peter before. That's interesting. What about that? See ya! <laughs> But it's Tom Holland, Spider-Man. Yeah, he licks Tom Holland. I mean... <laughs> I still feel like he's a child. Yeah. Anyway, everyone knows Venom never got to meet Peter Parker in this universe. What my stinger presupposes is... Bringing it back to uh, Owen Wilson. Maybe he did? <laughs> so, and again, this brings me back to just plonking Venom into the Spider-Verse to hog the camera. This is like your tedious loud uncle who everyone but you thinks is rad. You've been around with him when he's really drunk and self-loathing. You know what a hunk of shit this guy is, really. He's got a good heart, but he fucks everything up. And it's like that loud uncle going, hey, can I come on this road trip with you? And you're like, it's the day we're leaving and we're gonna be away for a month. And it's a, it's a, it's just me and my two friends. Like it's a, it's this tripod. This is special to us. Can I come with you? And that's what it's like him jumping into the Spider-Verse. Him jumping into the MCU is like, hey, can I be at your 30th birthday party? I mean, uncle, uh, it's gonna be mostly 30 year olds and you're 50. <laughs> and I mean, oh, that's fine. I'm young at heart. And it's like, he's this, old jock who never really grew up and still that's like his favorite thing is to get drunk and loud at parties and like him entering the mcu is like him saying hey can i officiate at your wedding nephew and you're like 
And he goes, fum, and then holds up the certificate, and he's actually got a fucking priest's license somehow. And you're like, how would you do that? And he's like, I was a captain of a ferry. They're allowed if they're boat captains. I'm like, have you got to be on a boat? Funny you should say that. Your wedding will be on this ferry. And you're like, Uncle Venom, please, could you not hijack this everything? It's fine. I don't hate Venom. I feel like these two movies underachieved wildly. But they make people happy, and I, I, mean, I, I can barely complain about that. I didn't have particularly anything invested in, in the character. I do think that it means a lot more when Peter has had the black costume in the past. But it feels like they're almost going to hop, skip, and jump over that as a concept, and they're just going to throw him into the Sinister Six to, again, dominate proceedings. We shall see. We shall see. From the sounds of it, it's going to be one of those many MCU movies that's delayed because Disney have realised they can't make the billion dollars they used to. So really what we're... Because we're all living in the future now and it sucks. What we're waiting for is for them to realise that they will never again make the billion dollars that they were used to. It's just a little pandemic. It's, it's still, still good. good. It's, it's still, still good. good. It's gone. I know. And back to Spider-Man No Way Home, maybe this one will make a billion. It certainly seems to be on the way. Though it's important to note that Eternals, Shang-Chi, and Black Widow made roughly half what things like Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Doctor Strange made. And even if No Way Home does break a billion, that's still a lot less than half of Endgame, but it does tell Marvel the future of your cinema, if you want to make the big bucks, is in massive crossovers. Like, if Venom turns up, suddenly it's all about Venom. Ergo, they've saved him for later. So it makes perfect sense for, like, kind of what they've done. I think I described it to you, Sharon, as, as the MCU is the swimming pool and Kevin Feige's quite protective of what goes in and out. Venom is the hot tub off to the side. <laughs> so they've taken a drop of that and then dropped it into the swimming pool. That's how much they get. <laughs> It's crossover homeopathy. <laughs> is Morbius the kiddie pool then in this? Oh, no, no. He's, he's just a, 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 a pool full of piss to one side that no one asked for. <laughs> Literally no one. <laughs> Whoa, okay, says Sony. We'll make a Morbius movie with uh, uh, Jared Leto. Literally everyone. What? Why? <laughs> Why? But the potential for Venom now, yeah. I think, is significantly better than it has been for any of the series up yeah. to this point. Because what we've got now is a Spider-Man who was used to having access to a lot of incredible power, mm. had a good chunk of that taken away, is going to have a zero support network and friends, yeah. and is going to have a symbiote come at him with a lot of tempting offers comparative to usual. Yeah. Also, we've actually got a fully formed version of Venom. Uh, that people really like in uh, uh, the cinema. And they can, even if it's not exactly that version of Venom, there'll be a, like, he'll come back around to the whole lethal protector! Like, that'll be his thing moving forward. So, like, I, I would imagine after uh, a period of... Because, like like I've been saying about, the, like, the Venom films have a weakness from not having uh, Peter in them and not having a relationship with Spider-Man. However... 
the Spider-Man films moving forwards can definitely develop as a result of having Venom in them. If nothing else, everyone's going to turn up for the next movie if Venom's in it. Like I said, he's the drunk uncle. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was surprised, genuinely surprised that there were that many characters in there and they actually worked. Like when they threw together this fearsome five, it was not let's uh, do a casting call and see who's a good version of all of these characters. They literally took the... Uh, in, in the case of several of them, the actors who had been in previous films working on their own, never interacting, and had them interact with uh, characters in different franchises. And most of the time, the little beats they had really worked. Like the, um, Willow pointed out that her favorite two were Flint, Marco, and um, uh, Maxwell Dillon, Electro, because... It's not their fault that they are the way they are. As, as, as Maxwell, who's now suddenly way cooler, says, like, when he came back to his body, I was like, what happened to the teeth and the hair and the, and the like, being a total nerd? I would imagine Jenny Fox was like, ah, no. Yeah, the eels sucked it out of me. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. But yeah, like, you got to be careful where you fall. So many of Spidey's, quote-unquote, villains are, are results of science accidents just like him. Mm. There was one point where I was thinking, but Norman Osborn was something of a shit before he took the golden, uh, the golden, the green goblin hmm. serum. The golden goblin. Something, <laughs> something clearly shifted him from being a man who was into progress and science hmm. into being a man who was obsessed about succeeding. This one definitely brought back stronger elements of... Actually, I feel sorry for um, Norman Osborn that almost like Raimi kind of left to one side once the Goblin was underway in the original Spider-Man. I'd, I'd forgotten that Norman was there at all. It just felt like Gobby was driving the whole time previously. Now they felt like Smeagol and Gollum. There's a there's a couple sequences, especially in the first movie, that it's hard to read whether it's Norman and the Goblin trying to fake Peter out mm. or if it's genuinely like a, a blackout episode and and like that that honestly the way this nails that down of like yeah. yes no this is a he blacks out that makes retroactively a strong beat in the first one I think even stronger when his you know his final conscious action is to not tell Harry his you know what a monster he became mm. but that what what you're talking about Alex is that this movie understands better than most other even even a lot of other MCU movies that the Avengers doesn't work because of the Avengers on the street fighting the aliens, it works because of them bickering in the helicarrier and eating shawarma. Like yeah. the the fact that Act two. this is yeah this is a hangout movie where people just like pal around in people's living rooms and and stuff like that. That's freaking amazing that they slow down for that but it's so engaging that you don't feel like you're slowing down. You're like, oh, yeah, now we get to the good stuff. Oh, is the scientist going to talk to the scientist? Hell yes. <laughs> and and it's it's astounding, like, not just that the that the, they, they put in the work to be like, okay, what's the smartest version of this? But that almost all of the returning guest stars really dug their teeth into it at every chance they got. Mm. Everybody nails it, in my personal opinion. Characters that I, I did not necessarily care that much about made me smile just by existing in this film. Nice. They've put a lot of really tiny moments in that work so well to emphasize that. Uh, in particular, the scene where the other two Spider-Men 
uh, appear from the portals in Ned's uh, kitchen, and they take the time to stop and clean cobwebs and clean up the webs that they shot because <laughs> Spider-Man is at the end of the day just a really nice boy no matter what universe he's from. He's a good boy. I love uh, that. I that really was Ned's like, yeah. Lolo which I believe is like the uh, equivalent of Abuelita. I really like um, the lizard um, when he shows up and is just being a lizard, you're like, okay, he's like another uh, another piece on the board here. We might not use him, but uh, he's here. But when they're all talking about their different fates and uh, the end of Norman and the end of Otto, um, he has this just this this moment of uh, vulnerability, and he asks the only other person he knows there. He says, Max, do do you know if I die? And it's just like, oh my gosh, dude, like the, the sympathy that I have for a character that I didn't even care about in 2012 is just, it's, it's really nice to see. Yeah. Although I do also appreciate that they go out like so long with the joke of the guy does not speak. And then everybody <laughs> is shocked when he starts speaking in an <laughs> eloquent, like British accent. Mm. And yeah. also... Reminds me quite distinctly of what is a fairly popular memed comic book panel from a different Spider-Man villain, but a similar vibe Sora? here of, yes, well, with this technology, you could cure cancer. No, I want to turn everyone into dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> and the lizard's whole deal in this yeah. Well, yeah. has always just been in the Amazing Spider-Man stuff. He just wants to turn everyone into lizards. Yeah. And when he, he said, uh, well, when you try to change people, there are consequences. I'm like, yes, because you try to change people into lizards. <laughs> Look, I'm trying to convince them. They're not lizards. lizards. That's a problem. <laughs> And uh, this, I think, actually uh, came out about from uh, an interaction with you, Mackenzie, on the Discord. In many ways, the memory wiping and overall dimension jumping and time hopping of this comic book adaptation, let's remember, uh, make it... That just raises further questions! The movie. So I'm going to allow you folks five minutes to ask all those further questions. By all means, jump to the end. Think about how they're going to address these in later Spidey and non-Spidey movies. And, of course, reflect back on past alternate timelines. Any questions you might have had, we might be able to answer them. There may be no answers apart from, uh, we didn't want people to think about that. Uh, when are they going to get to the Miles Morales factory? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, I feel like uh, Miles Morales almost certainly will be in the next one because Venom's going to have... Well, Spidey in his black suit's going to have to fight someone. Someone good. And if we're talking about characters he can meet in future movies, I if I had to guess, like they'll probably take a note out of the original comics and have Gwen be someone he meets in college. Mm. Which would track... But if we're getting to the memory wipe problems, well, problems is a strong word. Questions. Questions. Queries. They some queebs. Uh, they sometimes answer these later on because, like, they're like, let's think about that later, and they do. But the, the real yeah. answer to all of these is whatever they decide later, they will mm. retrofit to make it work, and that's fine. I don't actually have a problem with any of these, mm. but why do what? in Happy's mind is the reason that his normal middle-aged girlfriend who works at a food bank 
was that close to Spider-Man that they met each other through him? Mm. Does Peter Parker have any ID anymore? Does he exist in computer systems? If he does, does he kind of exist in his old school system? What's happened to all the news footage of that? Like, (laughs) is it still in tape form or did it get erased? Yeah, there's... When MJ and Ned woke, like, like, as soon as Peter... Uh, webbed himself away from the Statue of Liberty, attaching his webs to... Um, <laughs> they were like, oh, hey, Ned from school. Oh, hey, Michelle, is it? Yeah, why are we on the Statue of Liberty <laughs> Island? And who are all... Like, all of this... I was, they, they would have no villains around them at that point because they'd all gone. But they'd be on their own on Liberty Island and the fucking Coast Guard would be moving in with guns. And they'd be like, <laughs> we don't know why we're here, officers. But in fact, yeah, that, that's the thing. Like, she doesn't say, "Hey, how's it going, guy?" I woke up on the Statue of Liberty with. Yeah, they weren't friends before yeah. no. these movies, so it's interesting that they are friends you at guys the are end losers. of the movie. I love MJ. I really. I love do. her, <laughs> Michelle God. Jones. I, I love the fact that they 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 make it re- very clear that the she doesn't use Watson and why she calls herself MJ and how she distinguishes herself in that regard. Um, yes, she she's very much her own character, which is mm. very very appreciated, especially since MJ has um maybe not had the best characterization in spider media mm. in the world. Mary Jane comes with a lot of baggage. Mm. Mm. Here's a question about time jumping because one assumes every single of the villains got snatched out of the time just as they were about to kill Spider-Man in that climactic battle, they always end up dead. Uh, so that means that Doc Ock comes from 2004 and his version of Peter comes from now yes. or thereabouts because mm-hmm. it was like, it's still present day. So that means Peter's gone an additional 17 years. Hence, he's like, you're all grown up. But does that mean they then go back and then he's like, whoa, 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 don't kill me, Peter. Does that create an alternate timeline? I've sure. got an arc reactor. I don't need this sun thing. Also, what did Peter do when Octavius disappeared with the fusion bomb? See, my assumption on what happened there, and again, this is an assumption, is that they got pulled out essentially the moment they died. Hmm. So it's already after whatever the fight was going on because mm. they're all having that confused moment when yeah. they're recounting where no, they got pulled on. from. Yep. Sharon's shaking her head. because Octavius dies when he goes into the river with the, uh, the reactor. Yeah, he drowns. He's, he yeah. specifically says the moment he jumped out of that world was the moment he was holding Spider-Man by the throat. He's so, alive for quite a while after that point. So he'd be wet? Mm. He should be. <laughs> But, but yeah, not. but like if you remember, the exa- if we watched Spider-Man Two the other day when he when Peter unmasks in front of him and he goes, Peter Parker, lazy, and at that point he's then I will not die a monster. He's good, Octavius. After yeah. that, so he wouldn't then then turn up and go, time to destroy you, Peter. I think. I mean, he might be his his chip. Might have gotten back on in him. Or something. I think they're pulled through at the moment they realise that Peter Parker is Spider-Man because that's what this spell is connected with. It's the knowing that Peter Parker and Spider-Man are the same. Okay, so Norman would have been way, way before that final confrontation with MJ. Back at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Okay. So he was really lucid at that point. Yeah, and the lizard would have been taken from the moment he found Peter's camera with his name labelled on it. 
But that being the case, that means that version of Peter would then not have gone on to, like, because Norman Osborn would just have disappeared. Mm. So the uh, exact events of Spider-Man 2 wouldn't have happened. I think they're from different versions of their own universe. I do too, actually. That might explain why Electro's so much more rad than the version we know. Very true. He's got a high fade haircut. Did did his electricity give him a haircut? (laughs) Yeah, my idea behind the Electro thing is that he, he talks a lot about the fact that the energy hmm. that is in the MCU is different from the energy that is in his home universe. Yeah, that right. And um, <laughs> and uh, he, um, you know, I, I think at the end of Amazing Two, he like just becomes pure energy, right? Hmm. So like when that. he corporealizes yeah. in the MCU, uh, he's he's he his new look is kind of reflecting the different. Mm. energy that is in the MCU and the 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 yellow electricity as opposed to the blue electricity mm. is different as well also so if you're going to give yourself a new body in Dr. Manhattan yourself a skeleton and bones and whatnot you might as well make yourself as hot as Jamie Foxx normally is yes that is a fine <laughs> point very true, yeah. I, I, I just prefer to th- I personally would like to think that Jamie Foxx was like can I not be this ridiculous caricature of a nerd this time can I be a person like the version I, of Maxwell that should have been around from the get go I don't know I think there's an interview where he says exactly that nice <laughs> I never realized that the Sandman, Flint Marco, apparently dies when he floats away on the breeze at the end of Spider-Man 3. I thought that was him just kind of allowing himself to go where the wind takes him. I don't know if that's confirmed because the the qualifier for people being there is knowing that Mm. Spider-Man is Peter Parker. Mm. They don't need to be dead yeah obviously yeah. the peters aren't dead yeah because the lizard doesn't die either he's like in jail for the rest of those oh, yeah? movies yeah I, I suppose they wanted to keep him for the sinister six and they well, could he have says, like, killed him once he turns him back into oh uh, yeah uh, no it was um uh dennis leary who died in that at the end of that first uh amazing yeah. Yeah. there's even a line in the movie where they kind of address that because mm. there's a line in the trailer where Strange says they all died sp- fighting Spider-Man. That's their fate. Mm. Uh, but that line isn't actually in the movie. Mm. Oh, good, it's, right? They it's... may die fighting Spider-Man, yeah. and he doesn't know. But that's and, their fate. And that's such a great just question for for Peter's character to answer. And that was honestly the the moment when like the trailers kind of sold me on this movie putting in the work of like mm. having having this be about Peter saving the villains since. I mean, you know, like like Willow said, that's that's what Spider-Man does and that he's that he's choosing to do like this sort of, uh, you know, basically like hero triage, even on characters who might not need it, Mm. but they're here. So they like, well, not they they do need it, but like they their lives might not depend on it. But enough of enough lives do that. He's like, no, we're going to do this right. We're going to do them all. I love how they followed up on uh, Octavius actually being a decent guy as well. When they took away the arms from his head, he maintained the person he was before the accident and didn't then go, nah, I still feel like doing blimey crimes. Uh, He was was just much more um, relatable. Like he was the, the, the guy that we liked and it was, it was great to see him bring it. Like he really did feel like the same character. So whether he's from a different alternate or parallel universe or, or, or the same exact one, uh, there was a, a level of authenticity there to all of them. And I was going to keep this point 
to the end, but we may not get there because like we've got so much to cover. The, the MCU films get a lot of flack for what they've done to cinema, and uh, they they get a, a lot of flack for being the only thing people talk about online. That ultimately we've hand waved that with if it wasn't superheroes, it would be something else. I think what it comes down to is, if it was something else, that something else would have bungled by now and gotten stale, and it would be something else again. The reason the MCU maintains is, it's really well-crafted and ongoing, and so it has a staying power that most things that are very popular for a while, like Terminators, um, you know, just then go away after we a while. We are not used to trends lasting yeah. this long. But this is part and parcel of the internet. Like, uh, uh, I think Bob said this, after a certain point in our cultural and technological history, things no longer went away. We could find them on the internet anywhere, any day. Mm. And the MCU is symptomatic of a new age where it doesn't have to move in cycles of now everybody likes robots, now everybody likes... Like, if it if the Lord of the Rings had actually generated a series of, um, like, fantasies that everyone loved, then uh, th that would have been the thing that maintained. But because superheroes have their... Most of the time their basis in, at least with it from comics, in technology, even though there's a lot of magic in there as well, that way... The CG can kind of give people exactly what they want. If they wanted just fantasy, we'd have had just fantasy. But they actually seem to want this stuff. But what the MCU movies do that almost no other movie series does, occasionally Star Wars, but not now, I'm not sure about now, they make older films, often unconnected older films, better. We rewatched Spider-Man's 1 and 2 and Amazing Spider-Man 2 the other day. All of them held up. I liked all of them a lot more than I've liked them before, with the benefit and hindsight of having seen this and seeing where it develops. They finish off arcs, they give characters closure, they give characters redemption in this one film. It's like the, the, the first Captain America movie was solid, and then after Winter Soldier it was better, and then after Civil War it was better again. The, you know, the, the, what they're doing is not necessarily way ahead of time. To, but this will be really good in six years' time. It's that the scripts are very detailed and reflective in a way that allows us to see the character arcs over time. They have strong, solid scripts. It's not just gags. And they <laughs> tend to know what they're doing with most of them, even the they ones that misfire. They are very good at utilizing the pieces that they have access to, mm. and they have a lot of pieces mm. that they can work with at this point. I think for me, one of the things about No Way Home specifically that was really, really enjoyable for me was getting to finally see Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker get a good closure mm. to his mm -hmm. series. Because yeah. Uh, the Raimi movies, I watched them, but I was a little bit on the young side for them to really, like, be my Spider-Man thing. Mm. The, the movies that came out when I was most paying attention were the Amazing Spider-Man movies, and those are messy films. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that they're hidden masterpieces that everybody is needlessly harsh on. They're messy. But Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker was fantastic, and he deserved this closure for his character and he kills it in this movie 
He Andrew does. Garfield. He got so many yeah. laughs. Yeah. Uh, Andrew from, Garfield's had such a good year. Yeah, I have to kind of feel sorry for him just a little bit because he was trying so hard to just promote, like, with Tick, Tick, Boom that he was clearly so passionate about. But the headline of every interview he had was, Andrew Garfield won't say whether he's in No Way Home or not, <laughs> with no mention of Tick, Tick, Boom in the headline. By the way, that's not news. That's the absence of news. Your headline is you don't have a headline. It's just a shame because Tick, Tick, Boom is legitimately potentially Oscar worthy for him. If you haven't seen Tick, Tick, Boom and you My like favorite musicals, movie of the year. Same. <laughs> Andrew Garfield. If you see No Way Home and you think, wow, Andrew Garfield's better in this than I remembered. Or you laugh at him or you think he's you, you buy his emotional arcs. Go watch Tick, Tick, Boom and watch him just soar um, as an actor. But the, the larger point I was trying to make is just that it does that for a lot of the characters very effectively. It does that in a way for Norman and for Otto and for Max. And it does it really well for Peter, which is... Which Peter? Peter Parker. Which Peter Parker? <laughs> you know, uh, at, at that point when they're Peter being too? interrogated, they're pointing at each other like the meme. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Mackenzie. Keep going. It does so for which uh, Peter? For, for two of the three Peters. I think Toby Maguire's Peter Parker has already kind of had his arc completed by this point, And he's just kind of there to help out and, like, prove to the other Peters that, like, no, you can grow into a, like, adult man and you're not going to, like. That's what he has to say about him and MJ. Like, we make it work is how he puts it. He knows things are never going to be perfect, but that he can make it work at this point. And yeah, then, I, I, I think he's there to to show them that, like, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, like, yes, you, you can maybe not have it all, but you can maybe once you've worked on yourself, you can you can juggle things a little bit easier. You have a future. Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker gets a closure to his arc and also an imp- in the short conversation they have, it's implied that he kind of goes some really bad places after the movies we see, yeah. which I think works very well for his character. And I think seeing that at the end, he has enough hope to maybe go forward is heartening. Mm-hmm. And then obviously our Tom Holland's Peter has, well, he still has a lot of growing to do because he's 18, but he's, come into himself as an adult by the end. And when we see Andrew Garfield's Peter in this movie, uh, he is at his lowest point, right? Like Gwen's death affected him so deeply, uh, more so than at least from their conversations, any of the other Peters that are, are in this movie. He has no support system. He has no other heroes that are helping him. He's been carrying the world on his shoulders all by himself. Um, The other Peters in this movie are the first family he's had since 2014, seven years ago. Mm. He says that he's bitter um, when he introduces himself, but he's so ready to open up to them. And then when he's talking with Toby, um, he needed to hear from somebody else that he was amazing. And for that to come from an older Peter means everything to him he can't he can't say it back right then but the verification that he has been like starving for uh is just 
so needed. And it it, it follows into uh, the conclusion of this mini arc of the movie where he can save MJ. Uh, it was a catharsis that he needed and I didn't know how much that, that would hit me. I was just bawling in the theater from the, the fallout the, of that. The pop in my theater when that happened was bigger than for any other hero moment in the entire movie. Wow. When, it's a when good he moment. Said that, well, which one? When he just showed up? Because we had a huge like, pop no, in our theater for that. No, yeah, we have one for both of those Michelle. as well. Saving Michelle, oh, yeah. yeah was what yep. we were talking about there. But uh, yeah, they, uh, I, honestly, it's one of my favorite moments in cinema. When he came running through and somersaulted through that little hole, and it was like, hey, mm -hmm. it's the other Spider-Man. The, the amount of, oh, in my audience. I, I have never experienced that. I think, like, uh, we've, I've heard it in other audiences for Endgame-related stuff, like when everyone started walking through. Mm. But um, I've, I can't remember a time when I've actually been there at an oh moment. And I think it can only really happen when someone unexpected turns up that they haven't used as a bargaining chip in the trailer. Come to this film. We have this guy. It barely ever happens. It's also a little bit before you might expect it because so many of the trailers made it look yeah. like, you know, they're going to show up at the very end of the Statue of yeah. Liberty. And like the the yeah. easy version of this movie would have had all the, you know, all that, you know, just show up in act three. But the fact that they're there for like an hour, they're there right after the all is lost mm -hmm. moment. And then all yeah. three of them are immediately in like they, they don't necessarily work well together as heroes at first, but they're so immediately supportive of each other when you could easily do like a, a an Avengers thing where they're bickering for a lot of it. But instead it's like freaking Avatar. It's just like, nope, we love each other immediately. Hmm. Absolutely. They're brothers. So which version of Avatar it, are you talking about here? The last airbender. Okay. The good oh, yeah. <laughs> no, They're both good. But yeah, you know. Hang on, uh guys, Sharon's been more discussing for about fifteen minutes. Ah. <laughs> Okay, go. Okay, so this, this whole part of the conversation really feeds into what I think was fundamentally my biggest takeaway from this film, which is how it expresses the ethos of that we're currently trying to really engage with right now, which is reduce, reuse, recycle, and the, the whole remix culture of it, that we've we've kind of hit a point where it is really difficult to make anything new and the pressure to be completely original be unique do something that nobody else has ever done before but that's hard right now because with, there is so much hum, human development behind us now and like alex said with the the uh, the internet having become what it is, it is the memory of the human race at this juncture. And it doesn't forget anything. So that cycle where people do things and then they forget them and then they are rediscovered and they feel new doesn't really happen in quite the same way. So taking things apart removing the elements of it that mean something to you and putting it back together again in a different way, that's kind of where we're going right now. And one thing that really struck me that I got from this that I haven't from a, a lot of films that we've seen over the last couple of years is I was really frustrated by the lack of anything that's addressing what we're going through at the moment. Mm. There are... I, I, I can't off the top of my head think of any 
pandemic current movies. The, the MCU has come the closest with all the blip stuff because they went through a period where everything was very, very bad and then they're trying to put everything back together again and that has kind of a flavour of it. But this very specifically felt like they're dealing with a real shift in things are not the same ever again. There is no going back to that time when everything was normal. We now have to look at what we have, what is here in this moment that we've got, how are we going to take that apart and put it back together again into something which is livable? Yeah, I think what we are going through right now as a culture, as a society, as the human race, is one of those things that is going to affect all of the art that we've been making, but maybe not in ways that are so easy to understand. And it's nice to see something that is easier to connect with on that level that you can take and move forward with and maybe hold a little bit of inspiration from it. It's also valuable that we're, we're getting to see, even if it's not in exactly the same sort of context, like I think it's important for mass media art on this scale to reflect like a character having to essentially do, you know, emotional triage on themselves of like, who can I safely be around and not, you know, bring bring harm to others. And, you know, that's that's one of the reasons I'm less inclined to, you know, like try and find the edges of the, the memory thing, because it's just like, eh, you know what? I've I've been there. I, I don't care like where all the dominoes are going to fall, because like that's that's a powerful enough moment in the moment. Mm hmm. It doesn't feel to me like he's never going to go back to that, but it feels like he's... There's multiple reasons why he makes that choice at the end to turn around and walk away. And part of it felt like he wants to let Michelle and Ned have a period of calm. And part of it felt like he wants to let himself have one. To, to have a... a however short to have a space of time where he doesn't have people that he cares about immensely depending on him to keep them alive like he said earlier in the movie he hasn't had a week of his life that felt normal mm. since he got bitten by the spider yeah and by the end of this, he has the potential for a new normal. He doesn't have to hide because he doesn't have anyone to hide anything from. Mm -hmm. And he's giving himself the opportunity to have that period of reflection where he doesn't have to worry about anybody else's opinion of him. There are no expectations. There are very few demands that the the police scanner thing that he's got on his phone, that means he can respond to the things he wants to respond to rather than feeling like he's got to deal with everything all at once. And it's it's potentially giving him just that that moment to observe and reflect and breathe. Well, the film even has like those three characters to talk about how they're they're looking forward to having a fresh start. And you know, this this gives them that, just not the version they were all hoping for. Mm. Yeah. 
Okay, one of the core, core aspects of the movie is Aunt May. I think the centerpiece of yesterday was uh, um, uh, someone on the uh, forum who uh, really does know his movies and and moments in movies and storytelling and uh, uh, didn't particularly love many aspects of this film, saw merits in others, but at the end of a long list of um, issues mentioned that it just felt deflating that Aunt May was fridged. And I let everything else slide, but I was like, no, 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 what? I've got to interject very strongly on the idea that this is a fridging. And that comes down to the definition of fridging and what that entails. There are multiple hallmarks of a fridging. This was uh, something that was uh, start, first coined by Gail Simone, uh, bemoaning the uh, death of the uh, 1990s Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern's girlfriend. She was cut up in a fridge by a psychopath, and uh, it was just to make him angry and sad. Uh, it obviously, it actually relates all the way back to the beautiful, exquisite corpse of Gwen Stacy, who was killed because in the original comic run, Peter was becoming too complacent and happy, and they couldn't think of any other way to have him keep being Spider-Man and have to juggle all this stuff when things were just working out too well with Gwendy. So to a degree, Gwen was originally kind of a fridging. However, Uncle Ben, in the very first Amazing Fantasy number 15, dying and telling Peter, with great power comes great responsibility, um, that was... N- say, yep. I may interject there. Uh, you may not. You've got to oh, let me sorry. talk on this one, Austin. Okay, sorry. You've got to let me talk. That's not a fridging because sorry. that informs upon Peter's character from that point onwards for more than 50 years of storytelling. And not in a my dead family way. No, not in a I've got to have vengeance for, for, for Uncle Ben, but I've got to do better. I've got to be better on that. I'm going to play part of the overly sarcastic productions trope talk on fridging one in which they outline that natasha's death in endgame was a fridging i dispute that especially after black widow which was not out at the time that they released this and double especially after hawkeye but they are right that within the confines only of endgame which no mcu story ever is and frankly over the entirety of her run in the mcu Natasha was ill-served, not even getting a movie until she was dead. And I 100% agree with them on Gamora in Infinity War, who was killed to make Thanos sad for plot reasons, principally because the movie agrees that Thanos did love Gamora because he gets the Soul Stone. Yeah, Infinity War's got problems. Anyway, here is the basis of fridging. Character deaths are a big deal. They're momentous occasions both in story and out, because not only is the character dead, which is obviously a bummer on its own, but it also means the total loss of all future potential for a given character. All their arcs, dynamics, relationships, everything, all lost in exchange for a one-shot gut punch. Now, most authors recognize that this is a hefty loss for their story, so they make damn sure the impact is worth the price. True, non-fake-out main character deaths are often heroic sacrifices, protracted tragedies, or carefully woven resolutions to their arcs after all the loose ends have been tied up. 
they're usually given time and narrative weight to reflect this cost. The surviving characters will process their grief, reflect on what the loss means to them, and are often fundamentally changed by the experience, maybe carrying on their legacy, setting off on a lengthy quest for vengeance, or viewing their layered and complex life as a personal inspiration to guide their way forward. This is not that trope. Fridging is the very specific subset of character deaths wherein a character is unceremoniously and brutally killed specifically and solely for the narrative purpose of hurting another, more important character. This motivation can be Watsonian or Doylist, as in in-universe villain motivation or out-of-universe authorial intent. In Watsonian cases, the killer is specifically motivated to kill the Fridgy because it'll hurt the character who cares about them. In Doylist cases, the killer might have all kinds of personal reasons to want to unceremoniously brutalize this character, but the author's motivation in killing the character is only to make the more important character upset. The only narrative role this death plays in story is hurting a different character, and it's still framed as unceremonious and brisk. Fridging almost always refers to character deaths, but sometimes the character is instead subjected to some kind of horrible torture or fate worse than death with the same overall impact. The character that really matters isn't the one targeted for the horror, but the hero who's reacting to it. And the Fridgy's personal reaction to their awful situation is usually glossed over in favor of how much that focus character suffers by proxy. Because of reasons, fridging disproportionately affects female characters, often barely developed moms or love interests whose only salient character traits are the hero likes them. So when they're brutalized or murdered, often off screen, their more nuanced male hero fam slash love interests can become deeply unhappy about it. In fact, that's a very easy litmus test to help determine if a character death constitutes fridging or not. If it could happen entirely off screen and have just as much impact on the story, especially if it does happen off screen, it's probably fridging. Its only narrative impact is how it bums out the more important characters, with no exploration of how it affects the character actually being brutalized or killed. Getting killed off screen is such a dismissive fuck you to a character. There's no send off, no admission of tragedy. The character becomes nothing more than a plot device for someone else's angst. Side character or not, nobody deserves that. Now, the off screen test isn't quite enough to say if a death is fridging or not. See, while fridging is intended solely to upset another character, well written character deaths almost always upset the other characters too. And since the character themselves is usually too dead to care, most of the lingering ramifications of their death only affect the other characters, typically by upsetting them. So the distinction between a fridging death and a non fridging death isn't immediately obvious from just this definition. Now, pay attention, folks. Here is the key difference that absolutely makes May's death not a fridging. The key difference is a fridging usually makes the other characters upset briefly and shallowly, while a solid character death makes the other characters grieve. Frequently, fridged characters are never spoken of again after the arc they died in is resolved, or even before it's resolved. Try and convince me that Luke Skywalker was still bummed about Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru ten minutes later. So as a second fridging litmus test, I'd like to propose a corollary of the iconic sexy lamp test, which explores if a story would meaningfully change if a character was replaced with a sexy lamp. This is the property damage test. If a dead character could be replaced by someone's prized Pokemon card collection and their loss would have the same or more emotional impact on the plot, that character was probably fridged. Now, this is kind of a rarity for this show, but fridging is a bad trope. It's not a frequently misused trope or a hard-to-handle trope, it's bad writing. Character deaths are not bad trope-wise, but fridging specifically indicates a lack of respect for the fridged character and their narrative potential. Fridging weighs a character's potential worth to the story and concludes that all their future potential and growth and dynamics in the narrative are worth less than another character feeling kinda bad for a little while. This version of Peter is not going to feel bad about May for a little while. This moment will haunt him for the rest of his life, and her words to him will impact upon his decision-making. At least that's my prediction, based on Marvel's writing for 27 movies and 5 TV shows. Man, there's been a lot of Marvel TV this year. 
This is reflected both outside of the story and in the story, since this character's killer, be it the character who kills them or the author who makes the call, demonstrably couldn't give a sh about them in their own right, instead choosing the focus entirely on how ending this character's life will make another character upset for an arc or two. Their own life and death isn't as important or deserving of focus as hurting the hero by proxy. This successfully indicates that the killer is a terrible person, but it also reflects a level of dismissiveness from the author. A love interest slash beloved character can be killed or deeply, deeply hurt in a way that predominantly affects the plot by hurting another character without it feeling like fridging. This is largely a matter of the execution, pun intended. If the death is unceremonious and quick and off screen, that's a pretty bad sign, since it doesn't really give the character their due. It doesn't highlight the tragedy of their life and potential loss, it just focuses on why and how this will make the main character sad. Every character is the hero of their own story, and if they die just to further someone else's story, it denies that character the basic dignity of being their own person, who exists as more than just a prop in someone else's life. It takes their death and the loss of their entire future life and minimizes it down into a short, brief emotional impact on another character. It's dismissive. And actually, considering how much Gwen has haunted Peter, both in the comics and demonstrably with Andrew Garfield's amazing turn, I'd say to begin with she was fridged, especially as the front cover of that issue had a whole bunch of supporting players in the Spider-Man continuity and the claim of, in this issue, one of these characters will die which suggests, frankly, it could have been any of them just to make Peter feel bad. That's a fridging. However, better writers moving forwards have actually made Peter reflect on this terrible, terrible moment. And now that an alternate version of Gwen is back in a Spider-Man capacity, I don't know about you, but I pay extra attention to her. Because every moment she's sassing it up, she is not an exquisite corpse. Same as with Black Widow's death. A fridging can, in retrospect be somewhat abated by high-quality, emotional, and respectful writing. And May's words and May's urging of Peter... Like at that exact point, Peter was ready to just throw in the towel. He had tried to do a good thing, and it had all gone wrong. And he had just gone, yeah, fuck it, I'm just going to press this button, send him back, do the easy thing. I tried to do a good thing, the good thing was hard... It's too hard, it's too dangerous, I'm just gonna stop. And May had to stop him and say, Hold on, my boy. You have a gift, you were doing the right thing, and doing the right thing is hard. And it so will, you do have to suffer for it. Because if it was easy, everyone would do the right thing all the time. Um, but, Sometimes uh, doing the right thing hurts yeah. a lot. Uh, but a solid character death makes the hero characters grieve and it actually informs upon them. Now, there's a character of mine, a, a, a very precious one, who I had to spend years planning the death of uh, in uh, one of my uh, middle books. And when it happens, it broke my heart, but everything about that death informed upon the surviving characters moving forwards because this hero inspired and May inspires Peter. Our assumption has always been that there was an Uncle Ben who was responsible for making this MCU version of Peter the pillar of human decency that he is, this font of empathy. And there still might be an Uncle Ben, we'll maybe find out about it in the animated show. But one thing we know for absolute certain is this Aunt May has been teaching him kindness for a long, long time. 
So far from feeling let down about her death, and I suspect this might have been actually the cause of a lot of people's surprise, I feel irritated that they devoted so much screen time to this version of May just worrying about Peter and being unexpectedly hot. Because clearly she was capable of being so much more. Marvel has a problem with writing women. but I will tell you one more reason why this is definitely not a fridging in the truest sense. Can anyone tell me the name? Not you, Austin. You're too much of a comic fan. Can anyone tell me the name of the Green Lantern Kyle Rayner's girlfriend who ended up dead in the fridge? Not a clue. Not a clue. Nobody knows because it was a fridging. It was just to make Kyle Rayner unhappy. For the record... Neither do I. I think it starts with an A. <laughs> so even Austin doesn't know that's it. A truly epic death that hurts us, the audience, almost as much as the characters that it hurts. That's not a fridging. That's a tragedy. Especially when like that character it's... is in charge of their agency for the entirety of, of that event. Oh, yeah. Like, this is... This is not someone who was like scooped up because so and so found out that Peter was Spider Man. Like she died exactly. fighting alongside him. Mm. She rips a pipe out of the ceiling to stand between like this this monster that she's still trying to save and her nephew. And it's like that's that's not the same thing. That is very very different. And I think that if you're if you're going to reduce it to fridging, I think that kind of like. I think that belittles that character's agency and her like her very palpable effect on the story, not just on 15 minutes of the character's emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Austin, you were going to interject before. By all means, go for it now. Um, well, actually, um, as the conversation has gone on, like the points I was going to make have all been made, especially okay. what Brendan just said. Like that was the main thing I wanted to say, like the, like, the key thing to me that makes a fridging a fridging is where the character's agency is applied to it. Mm. If it feels like the character has become a prop in order to be either killed or otherwise damaged, not for their own story, but for another character, then that is a fridging. Yeah. It's, it's not just when characters suffer and someone else feels bad about it it's if someone else feels bad about it but the suffering of the person is never taken into account yeah this is what's uh, so frustrating about uh, gwen in amazing spider-man 2 because there's some lazy lousy writing in there where uh roberto they try to make it about her agent yeah like they like they have her keep insisting on her agency but then once the moment actually comes 
it's gone. She's a prop. Yeah, she gets. Once she does the thing down. she was trying to do, which is help people because she knows the grid. And then the goblin comes along and goes, I heard that there was a tragedy that needed to happen, that I was going to speed this one up. We were going to save this for the next one, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it now. Gwen deserves better. Yeah. I really yeah. hope they have a Spider-Gwen in the MCU at some point. Me too. So I mean, this is, um, again, Bob did a, a show on how uh, Gwen I Stacy mean, for years was known only... In yeah, hold on. Right Please don't interrupt me. Hold on. Hold on. Sorry, hold on. Sorry. Sorry. Hold on. Sorry. Uh, Bob Chipman did a, uh, a show for how for years Gwen Stacy was just this this and beatific dead woman in Peter's life. This terrible mistake that he made, especially because he blames himself because the way he tried to save her may or may not have contributed to her direct death, and it's kind of grisly and a little bit salacious regarding how how culpable Peter was in this. But then Gwen becoming this Elseworlds version of a ghost spider and her Gwen being Peter, who became the lizard in her world, became, like, it made her more than that. So this is a, (laughs) Hayley Steinfeld is very important to the Marvel Universe right now. Steinfeld is very important to me. Yeah, yeah, we well, uh, right <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, go for it. Uh, what were you going to say? Uh, what I was going to say is that uh, right now, um, uh, I forget the exact series of events that led up to it, but uh, Gwen actually got, uh, Spider-Gwen actually got depowered in the comics, but she got them back by becoming the host of a benevolent symbiote. And now we have a symbiote in the MCU, so... Now that would be an interesting angle instead of Miles to have Peter have to deal with a girl who has superpowers. I have something on Aunt May. Uh, Go for it. Yeah, please. The the whole conflict of this movie is so simple Mm. uh, to resolve. You push a button and they go away. Yeah. It's the easy temptation. Yeah. And Peter's on board for that. You know, he's like, I got to fix this. They're here. I have to send them back. And Aunt May takes him aside and, and she's like, listen, the, 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 she might understand that the problems of these people aren't in, da- aren't a danger to their own reality, but they're people. And that's, that's who she knows to help. You know, she's, she's on the ground. She's at feast. She helps, you know, the, the, the poor and lowly. Um, and in her final moments in this movie, she teaches Peter that you should be good even when you don't have to be, mm. she could have run away from this building. She couldn't um, have, have done anything to protect herself, but she sacrifices herself so that her loved ones can live. Mm. And that is a lesson that Peter takes with him. And at the very end of the movie, he sacrifices himself so that his loved ones can keep going. Yeah. And I, th- I think that that she is a shining example in 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 his life, and she and he, you know, consciously or not, carries forth the things that she mm. instilled in him. She uh, ties into too many of the themes of the movie and the concepts for it to be a simple fridging. Mm. There's the obvious great power, great responsibility level. The that drew a gasp do- from my first audience. I loved it. So, it was like, oh, yeah. like she said it. And then everyone was like, oh, no, that's bad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it also ties very much into the decision that Peter makes at the very end of the movie regarding his social life and his safety net. And that hurt 
death is probably the main reason he doesn't go talk to his friends yeah. at the very end. It's he knows there are consequences and he values his the agency of the people he loves enough that well, if they don't know, they can't make these decisions and I know they'll make these decisions. Mm. Also seeing the uh, uh, amazing Spider-Man has been shattered by the death of his version of MJ in his own words. Yeah. And uh, the end of Spider-Man 2 does in fact feature Kirsten Dunst's MJ making an informed adult decision to go, okay, I now know Spider-Man is Peter Parker. I'm going to brave that anyway. And she runs in her bridal dress and, and stands in his doorway and she says, I'm an adult, I can deal with this. And then there's that sort of the foreboding moment afterwards. But you could almost follow Spider-Man's um, Spider 1 and 2 with Amazing Spider-Man 2 for, and this is the fallout of that. It's a bit... It's, it's more than a little bit like there's only one end to all of your relationships, Spider-Man, and that's people dying. But that's the thing. Goblin also fucks with him because he tells Peter that morally May is wrong. That, in his own words, no good deed goes unpunished. And it, it's really important to note in this movie and in all movies that the Goblin's in, whether he's a hallucination to Harry or not, Goblin lies all the time. He's morally bankrupt, and his priority is preserving himself as a shard of Norman Osborn's broken psyche. He has to keep going on and on about power and grabbing everything for himself. He has to you know, see the world as this fucked, but he's not one of those villains that just tells you the truth. He lies. It's, it's like listening to Agent Smith's view on the world and going, well, if he said it, then that must be how bad humanity really is. We must just be a virus. Agent Smith is a Nazi, and the Green Goblin is a monster. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the Goblin and, it, like, Defoe, like, Defoe. really brings it in in this movie, like... Like, it's, he hasn't missed a step in two decades, and that's mm. super impressive. But what I was, but what I really want to say is, like, the Goblin, I, at his core, is the worst aspects of Norman Osborn, and that's why there's such a big divide between the two halves whenever he's talking to himself. And part of the worst parts of Norman Osborn is his fuck you, got mine yeah. attitude that, you know how much I sacrifice? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> like that chills like that like that whole part of him yeah and Nathan were you going to say something it w uh, yeah I was, I was yeah, going to say when you um, when you're charting the themes of No Way Home uh, one of the key parts of it is that uh, Tom Holland has two main foils in this movie and mm. they are Aunt May and Doctor Strange who uh, when Doctor Strange hears that he didn't talk to the MIT representative before coming and asking him to rewrite history, mm. uh, his response is that, you know, he kicks him out of the Sanctum Sanctorum and <laughs> basically tells him that he is being stupid uh, and reckless. But then when Doctor Strange has the opportunity to save these interdimensional travelers or just send them back to 
potentially be killed, he is ready to just make the easy decision mm. and send them straight home. He but balances Peter up lives versus lives. Yes, and, and Peter makes the decision to keep them around and try and help them because Aunt May tells him that that is the right thing to do and he trusts her. So you have... He should have this... hung out with Steve Rogers more. That was his response <laughs> in Infinity War. We don't trade lives. That's right. He's growing into those shoes. Hmm. And you can almost see that as an extension of what uh, Tony Stark's approach to solving problems is, is just, you know, throw money or technology at it until it goes away. Yeah. But this is why um, Peter is not and never was just baby Iron Man, because if anything, he's diametrically opposed to Tony Stark. The the symbols, mm -hmm. Tony, Tony Stark and Steve Rogers are not present in this movie, but their symbols are here in huge form, mm. particularly Steve's. The arc reactor that... Max, Max uses yeah. to amplify his energy. So that's Steve being misused, the technology that he... Tony. Sorry, that's Tony being misused, the technology that he created. But then you have this huge shield that, first off, they've attached the Statue of Liberty in place of the torch. It's over the torch. It, the torch it, is still there. Well, yeah, but the if you cover the torch up, then you defeat the point. If you're going to replace anything, mm -hmm. replace, replace the, the book. book. She's holding the shield. Yeah, no, you're right. I agree. I agree. <laughs> fact that that symbol of Steve and what he sacrificed was very is unsteady there as, as well. well. It was very unsteady, <laughs> and and ultimately he. So yeah, you got Steve and Tony's kind of their, their tools being misused. Yeah, but what? But the point is that that also puts their presence there in terms of uh, Peter being surrounded by people who had an element of mentoring to him, hmm. who it, they may have turned quote-unquote evil, but most of the villains that are in this are people who he had some kind of connection with and tried to teach him something. Three of the five. Yeah. Yeah. There's also this this really deft touch the film does in terms of, like, making little echoes to, to like, just, like, under underpin bigger points of, like, there's just a little bit more depth there than you'd expect. Because when Aunt May says, with great power, there must also come great responsibility, he recognizes that. This isn't the first time he's heard that. It's the first time, like, this lands on him in, like, that big moment. But that's clearly something that he's heard before, whether it was from his uncle before his uncle died, or maybe that was something that was just always Aunt May's thing. And the, the other thing that, like, we already know about Strange is, like, he's... He's worried about messing with the fabric of reality, which, you know, is what Peter is asking him to keep doing. So you you have because of the not just the the fact that, like Alex said, the scripts are smart and that the actors really bring it. But like you've got all of this wealth of material of like, oh, yeah, we've we've been down this road with these characters. Of course, these things like kind of echo through because, you know, we already heard Peter basically say with great power comes great responsibility a little bit in Civil War. Mm. So it's it's obviously something that's been in the back of his mind so it can just click together. It's like, oh, yes, this has always been here. That's that perfect puzzle piece slotting just right in there. Look, when you can do the things that I can, but you don't. And then the bad things happen. They happen because of you. So you want to look out for the little guy, you want to do your part, make the world a better place, all that, right? Yeah, 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 just looking out for the little guy. That's what it is. 
Yeah, the first thing that he says after she she says, "With great power comes res- responsibility," is he's like, "Yeah, I know," and it's just this, you know, th- this moment between them where they understand uh, the sentiment that they're putting forth. There's something very significant about the way she frames it, though, the way she phrases it. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between with great power comes great responsibility, which means that if you have power, it weighs on you and responsibility comes with it. She says with great power must come great responsibility, meaning if you have power, you have to use it responsibly. You have to take the responsibility. It's not something that just lands on you. Also, it's even more significant than every other Uncle Ben moment that I've ever seen. Because, for one major principal reason, in almost every other case, Ben doesn't even know who he's talking to. Ben believes he's talking to an angry young kid who started a fight at school or didn't pick up his aunt and isn't taking responsibility, but he thinks he's talking to a kid and he's telling him he's trying to make sure that Peter, who seems to be going astray at that point, will grow into a decent man. He sees that decency in Peter and this is unusual for him. He's trying to get him back on the path. Peter is inherently like that. He has to remind Peter to be like that. May does that as well, but May knows that he's Spider-Man. May knows how much he has to sacrifice and give up. What a burden it is and what hard ongoing work it is. Because you could just do one good thing and go, I'm a hero. The hard part of that is that you have to then live with the consequences and keep doing the good thing. I also like the line she has earlier on, the, this is what we do. Mm. It's She's incorporating Peter into this team of people in the world Mm. who do good things, who help. Yeah. That exact phrasing from Aunt May is actually how it was originally phrased in Spider-Man's origin as a conclusion Peter reaches himself, not some wisdom that was handed to him. Like, he goes through this tragedy and he realizes with great power there must also come great responsibility. Nice. Very Thank nice. You. Thank you for that. Uh, I was yeah. Mackenzie. going to say that I'm very glad Aunt May got to do Feast in this. That Feast was, I know that it's a little bit minor moment and maybe if you didn't already know what was going on there, you would miss it. But showcasing that she is taking care of people, which I think was also an element in the last one, but she just wasn't super present for most of that movie showing that she's that kind of a person and also the moment where they threaten her with child endangerment in the investigations and how not okay she is with that they give her enough characterization in this movie that i'm just i'm grateful that we had an aunt may who was allowed to do that kind of stuff instead of just being like a clueless nice old lady the, yeah. the fact that she, he even makes his final suit using her sewing machine likely with the fabric that she was using at feast to like help feed and clothe the you know the the, the disaffected is that that's that's just mwah, that's that's writing right there that's i don't writing. think it's a coincidence that he takes them to the statue of liberty at the end I think feast and bring us your tired, your cold, your hungry, the the whole thing. It's an intentional 
point of this is what I choose to emulate at this point. It's also such a good, like, big New York sort of arena for a Spider-Man yeah. story. Like, I, I like the other MCU Spider-Man movies, but I really appreciate that they're like, this is a fucking New York Spider-Man movie. <laughs> also, I guess they're cleaning the Statue of Liberty while they're adding this, the uh, the shield. So now it's going to the MCU is going to have to remember that the Statue of Liberty isn't green. or it'll have to slowly add the green over the years like in real life ugh I have a question because I haven't actually seen Far From Home in a while Uh, was May working at Feast in that yes there we go I also suspect that's how Happy knows May knows Spider-Man because Peter Parker may not exist in this world anymore but Spider-Man was still the face of Feast yeah that's and, how Norman found him as he was in an ad for the, the yeah. shelter. Yeah, that's uh, okay. So that's it's it's absolutely consistent with May's character. Then they, I, I, I don't know whether she's done that in the comics. I know she's definitely helped out, certainly uh, in the Straczynski. Yes, that comics. was part of Brand New Day. So yeah, I, I love the fact that May has retained that from both comics and the video game, which seems to have uh, informed. Uh, many like several aspects of this. Like at the end, the end of this movie is the beginning of that video game, even down to the police scanner. Although I am disappointed she doesn't try to get married to Doc Ock. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I nudged uh, my wife in the in the theater. I was like, when uh, Aunt May was offering water to Doc Ock, and I'm like, they tried to get married in the comics. (laughs) (laughs) Look, those actors. That would be a power couple. Another thing I noticed, uh, obviously, the, the, the game has a big dramatic key death, which we won't spoil. Somebody spoiled it on the uh, uh, Discord, but we won't because we. On a, I would recommend playing that game. It's one of the best adventure action games of our time, uh, so I don't want to spoil it. But it had a similarly impactful, heartbreaking death in it of someone very close to Peter. And I feel like this... They are of a kind in that regard. But this really had a desire to illustrate to us who, what it is to be Spider-Man. And I've, I've, we've kind of uh, touched on it a little bit so far, but the three Spider-Men together was quite extraordinary. For no other reason than there was no toxic male bullshit in there like you you said it wasn't like the avengers fighting they were so supportive and sweet to each other no one took even a vague pot shot and when any of them sort of took offense was like oh you're oh. right i'm lame it's like no, no 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 you are not lame you're amazing say it it just it kind of reminded me of um it, yeah, moments when media will go out of its way to have say especially women compliment each other in a genuine fashion because we live with an anxiety of i'm not good enough so someone telling you, no, 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 you're doing this, you're rocking this, is really something to us. And also doing unlicensed chiropractic, which is- <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, he was complaining about it, my back, back in 2004. I'm like, yeah. Peter, get like that car. scene to. You may have slipped what a I, disc. What I love about that moment is that me and my brothers used to do that to each other all the time. Oh, God. <laughs> It is such a such a relatable kind of fraternal moment between the characters. It's great touch. 
they also have such a good hand at figuring out how to execute like and this is partially the actors of like each actor's version of peter so that they're complementary but also unique because like you know garfield has like a lot of that you know he's not cool but he's like just a little bit like low key and then toby mcguire slips right back into that socially awkward hey i just walked through the door oh it's it, it's gone oh okay and he and like even just the fact that like he says no 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 say it say you're amazing it's like that's not the way that people generally like interact in mm. terms of people they've known for just like a couple hours but it's so in tune with you know the the 20 year old like 1960s nerd 1990s youth movie version of peter it's there, it shouldn't have worked as well as it did, honestly, the way they balance those personality traits. Did anyone think that Toby was going to die in this movie? And why yeah. do you think they didn't Just a, do that? I don't think killing him would have produced any actual value for mm. anybody. It, it would have produced a lot of, you killed my Maguire, now I will kill you! Like he's just <laughs> I think it would have been one step too far. Mm. Mm. It's much like, better for the, just the whole, like, no, I, I've been stabbed before. It's okay. Yeah. You're in an indescribable amount of pain, aren't you? Yep. <laughs> I was in uh, so much shock. That was just, that was crazy. Yeah. But I still got my heart in my throat. I, it, it just kind of it reiterated that the goblin is just going to stab at all times. I kind of like the fact that he fades away, Norman Osborn, forlorn, without any kind of big redemption moment. Like, like he could have ended up like kind of like uh, Otto, but it maintained the thematic uh, directions of both of those characters. At the end, he died going, Godspeed, Spider-Man! <laughs> Don't tell Harry! And then Otto <laughs> died, I will not die a monster. So it, it, it maintained that. But um, honestly, there's a line in a, a Weird Al Yankovic uh, uh, song Sling Us a Web You're the Spider-Man And he's riding around on that glider thing And he's throwing that weird pumpkin bomb Yes, he's wearing that dumb Power Rangers mask But he's scarier without it on This movie knows that So when they give him <laughs> yep. the retro like comic effigy costume they just let him have his fucking terrifying Willem Dafoe face with the fucking fangs and the fucking eyes and it's like wow he really didn't need a mask in the first place everybody gets to show their faces a lot more than a standard superhero yeah. movie in this yeah. because it would be very confusing and complicated yeah. to try to follow everything otherwise. which is also part of why they give Tom Holland that golden spider for the climax mm. yeah it's a very they, clear, that's our main guy. They they also, like, Defoe spe specified that he wanted to be as physically involved in po as possible, which is possibly why both of his big fights with Holland are like, he's not wearing the mask. Mm. And, oh my god. He's tossing him through floors. So these many are, floors. These okay. are my Those favorite shots, fights. Like in the MCU Spider-Man movies, they the fact that they brought back that big physical tactile dudes throwing dudes through walls or even you know, not just like dudes, but like people in spaces and bodies getting just absolutely mm. physically wrecked on sets. Yes, that was so good. After all the drones and illusions of the second one, it was yeah. uh, it, it kind and of reassuring and painful at the same time. And and my heart was in my throat. I was like, oh God, no! Like when that starts happening, and you know how treacherous Goblin is with explosives and knives, 
anyone could get really badly hurt, and they did. I, the Marvel movies in general recently have been a little bit more uh, visceral yeah. with mm. their fights. Black Widow yeah. also was very crunchy. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I like that. And it's it's very good at making you actually remember that these are people that mm. even with superpowers getting thrown through a floor twice in a row is gonna mess you up. Like I don't think anything in an MCU property this year has topped Makari grinding Icarus's face mm. against that cliffside. <sighs> like that that's just my favorite action moment in a superhero movie this year. Yeah, y'all slept on uh, Eternals, folks, but that's okay. We forgive you. You you could catch that in early January on Disney+. Plus. I feel like it's going to get a second renaissance. I um, highly recommend you all do so. Yeah, and then listen Solid. to our show. It's revealing. There's a lot of stuff in there. Um, okay, two more things that I noticed. One, uh, this was neat. I don't even know whether this was intentional or not, but I feel like there was a shot placement, a very specific one, that indicates, yeah, we know what we're doing. When it zoomed in on, it's going to be on this, in a, this finale will be in the Statue of Liberty. It zoomed in on Peter sort of alighting, one of the Peters, Peter one, alighting on one of the tangs poking out the top of the, ca- uh, the statue's crown. The first blockbuster action sequence of a finale from the new superhero movie boom in the early 2000s took place at the top of the Statue of Liberty in X-Men. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. thought that was neat. Mm-hmm. And they've kind of circled Alan back Smitty's around, X-Men. almost like they're taking stock <laughs> with all of these... Se- Sorry, say again, Brenda? Oh, uh, uh, Alan Smithy's X-Men. I'm just dunking on Singer because he sucks. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> fucking prick. Um, yeah, total underachiever of a movie, but, you know, it paved the way. But it was it very much is in line with this film taking stock of everything that's come before before we gear up to move forwards i love that also notably um cops have changed who they are in superhero movies in the original tim burton batman they were like kind of bumbling keystone cops always there late causing uh, you know a, a fracas but basically kind of incompetent and run by the uh, the commissioner who doesn't really have uh, that much coordination throughout the city and in spider-man they were kind of like he stinks and i don't like it like they were they were just kind of loud New York cops kind of cartoons, but they didn't really help Spidey much. They just kind of create a bit of a problem. But there's definitely personality there. And in Amazing, like you remember, there was a very key shot when he's down on his knees about to be arrested by Chief Cop, who uh, is his nemesis, and at the same time his girlfriend's uh, father. And so the cops become kind of a, a genuine adversary for him. But still, the cops doing their jobs. Now, this fucking faceless terrifying SWAT team who don't help or save anyone and shoot our hero after his aunts died. Yeah, they, like they a real shoot, yeah. yeah, they shoot a teenager. Yeah. They wow. arrest everybody they see. Yeah. Happy rolls up and they just immediately arrest him with he lives there. Any recourse. Yeah. yeah. Uh it's I, I I would like for them to maintain that the, the whole, like, we need to switch it from a couple of bad apples to a couple of good apples. That's That's got to be moving forwards. Because you can't feed us this line of shit of... Uh, we watched Fallen the other day with Denzel Washington from 1997. And it is a great supernatural thriller. 
But when he gives his speech about how cops are effectively the knights of the modern era, yeah. uh, it, it, it rings hollow, but it also informs on character because he genuinely believes what he's saying while he talks to crooked, corrupt uh, cop James Gandolfini, playing it well. Um, but like he's Steve Rogers at that point, and that made me realise, wow, a 90s Denzel could have totally rocked playing Steve Rogers. Or indeed, Isaiah Bradley. But yeah, the... Um, we can't be peddled that anymore. We can't be, 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 be sold this version of the cops. So it was actually kind of chilling to see them accurately portray what cops mean. And especially when they bring in Miles again. Like, there's no way... Like, it was always kind of a... Okay, so are these cops going to react to Miles as Spider-Man differently from Peter Spider-Man in the uh, video game? But in the movies, like, if they catch wind of the fact that the new Spider-Man is black, that changes the cop's attitude already. So they may as well just start from this, you do not want them to turn up point. They escalate it really smartly, too, because at first they're, you know, they're just getting, like, the, the general, like, law and order, you know, cops, like, you know, doing the questioning thing and harassing them in there. And then it, it progressively gets worse and worse, specifically because... Of the conspiracy theorist who's egging people on on the yeah. you know on the radio. Yeah, not to beat about the bush, but uh, lovable old pickle puss JJ literally swats Peter in this. Yeah, that's the last we see of Jameson, as far as I can tell, apart from that's, at the very end where he comes back and 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 me that shot of that shot of like Holland Peter just so small in front of that screen of Jameson mm. talking about how terrible he is is just. Like, that's an all-time great shot for any Spider-Man movie. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that, that's in line with everything, that, all the line of shit that the goblins just fed him about uh, his aunt being morally lost and the idea that what she's trying to do is pointless. He is giving up at that point. He's like, Jameson is helping good people stop doing anything and he's green he has a green background and he yeah. films it oh. on the green screen nice nice <laughs> that's funny all of spider-man's uh, uh enemies have a lot of green to them and uh, so does jameson's mm. new show yeah. i mean like he is green, an out and out secondary, green purple villainous secondary colors um red blue yellow heroic prime colors so yeah maybe that's your sinister six right there he's your sixth say, villain it's not strange jameson's <laughs> your sixth yeah Ooh, he's he's nice. the tom holland villain yeah nice the other contemporary touch to I, uh jameson I, that i think is is funny but also sadly accurate is that he starts his show filming in a green screen on a table in his apartment and he ends in a full studio with the whole oh. setup and oh yeah yeah uh. because he hit on a conspiracy that he can really get a grift out of i was sad he immediately see. starts peddling supplements i was yeah. sad to see how this is a jameson i could absolutely see funding the development of robot spider slayers mm. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to redeem this fucker. So like, while it was him. great to see him back, I was like, you you are ruining everything. The worst. The, <laughs> the like, three Spider-Man team-up was reflective less of how Spider-Verse handled it than how it was handled back in the first Spider-Man story to ever do something like this, which was the 90s Spider-Man animated series. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because... 
Because in Spider-Verse, all of this is happening in reflection of Miles' origin, but here, like in that finale, it's about Peter's growth, being placed alongside seeing these other Spider-Men who have been on their own journeys. Yeah. This is, as I think Mackenzie said, this is him graduating from, honestly, a Spider-Boy to Spider-Man. I'll refer you back to when I compared this with the Arthur legend and how much further it goes than just the King of Camelot. Tony Stark's Arthur is dead. Steve Rogers' Lancelot is gone. Stephen Strange's Merlin is disapproving. Peter is a young, pure knight going it alone. Uh, Sharon, you liked his shiny suit at the end. That's his armor. He's he's Galahad, and he has to define his own quest. Uh, watching it the second time today, uh, where he's standing in front of MJ in the shop, about to say something, and there was a guy in front of me, literally pumping his fist in the air, going, "Go on, say it, say it!" And then he uh, he said goodbye, and then and left, and he was like, "Oh," and I was like, "You really don't get." why that's a good thing, right? <laughs> and and the, I think, extra special um, note needs to be given to Zendaya's very withheld physical acting throughout this because she yeah. gets things to say, which are sarcastic and funny, but the best stuff is off script. It's how she handles moments. And obviously Tom Holland brought that same intensity that he showed us in uh, uh, Infinity War. Uh, that heartbreaking end to the death of Aunt May. But she has this kind of, I'm at the periphery. I can't really affect things. I'm just a person, but I want to support you. I want to be there. And just feeling this stuff spinning away and out of her grasp. And Zendaya really sells that. She's a phenomenally good actress. She gets to take her character's armor off because we've seen MJ like intentionally distance herself because, you know, that's what a lot of, you know, teenagers do at that point in their lives. And she's she's sarcastic. They even have that conversation where you're she's like, I love sports. I think the Mets are going to go all the way this year. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and by the by the end of it, she is like fiercely like not not sorry, she's, she's emotionally raw. And she's saying you you would better. And it's. Yeah, she she really gets to flex in this. And even though she's not like as as physically involved in, in like punching people like the the business that she gets and the emotion she brings to it is still so palpable. Hmm. Although she may or may not just punch Peter right in the face after she figures out about all of this. Hmm. Oh, she's definitely going to punch him in the face. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm fairly certain we won't see the end of her on this. Um, well, this is really important. Um, yeah, go for it. Peter goes to a lot of trouble in Far From Home to get um, MJ a necklace. Hmm. And in this movie, No Way Home, she wears the necklace in all of her scenes, including after her memory of Peter is wiped. Ah, <gasps> thank you. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I just want to uh, to shout out Michael Giacchino because oh, yes. this is... Uh, he's he's been doing great work and he's he's always like at least recognized was like yeah that's a little michael giacchino sprinkled in there but but the fact that he gets to not only play with his own doctor strange theme and mm. hearing his spider-man through a harpsichord the theme, through <laughs> when that, they're in the undercroft yeah but then 
when the Spider-Mans are teaming up to do science and you get a little bit of the, the Danny Elfman mm-hmm. and then you get like a lot of the choral stuff and, and the way he combines the three spider themes into this ultimate heroic operatic with the with the vocals as well version of that before for the end is he's he's at this point at least up there with Alan Silvestri in terms of knocking those MCU scores out of the park. Oh, great. I actually think he's a little bit better than uh, Alan Silvestri in terms of what he weaves in, with this being the prime example. I Most people won't know it, but when uh, Electro is talking to uh, uh, Peter after he's done, he's like, oh, I've tapped out. Amazing Peter, that is. Uh, you know, I just thought that you'd be black and there must be a Spider-Man out there who's black. I got a ripple of, yeah, in the audience both times. <laughs> but it plays Jerry Goldsmith's score from the original 2012 Amazing Spider-Man film, which everyone's forgotten, but it's there anyway. And it's not just the Danny Elfman score from the original. He brings back the Goblin theme. He brings back uh, the uh, Doctor Octopus theme. And the fucking Sandman theme, which wasn't even Danny Elfman. It was from Spider-Man 3 when Elfman had walked long ago. I think he even like wouldn't take part in Spider-Man 2 and it had to be reorchestrated without crediting that person who did that, like Christopher Vestal or something. Um, but yeah, the this is everything I've always wanted from an Avengers movie in terms of scoring by going, yeah. I'm taking this theme from this movie and I care about this theme. I've studied it. Here's this theme. This is this character. Marvel should have been doing this from fucking Jump Street. The moment that <laughs> They started, like, when Tony Stark turned up at the end of Incredible Hulk, it should have gone, like, just like a little bit of Raman Javadi's score, just to weave it in and just keep building this opera over the years. They did it visually, and they've done it in terms of script, but they never quite did it in terms of music. Uh, I love the fact that Silvestri's dug into this and then is moving on, will we'll hopefully, I think, was it, did they take, get rid of him and put Danny Elfman on scoring duties for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness? Yep, it's bollocks. Yeah. Bad it idea. With- Danny Elfman never works with, oh, actually, I suppose, I think I have heard him do harpsichord before. He's, he was great in the 90s. We, we shall see, but uh, Age of Ultron is not the best MCU score, while Doctor Strange is fucking fantastic. Like, just going by the post-credits trailer, like, we're in for one Sam Raimi-ass movie with oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And after watching <laughs> Spider-Man 2 again and going, you know what? That this is really good after all these years of other people telling me it's really good. I certainly appreciate Tobey Maguire now a lot more mm. than I did before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's still like a lot of things that we said about Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 1 way back in the day still stand and Spider-Man's uh, Amazings 1 and 2 mired down with greedy desperation to have their own MCU with Blackjack and Hookers and <laughs> where did that end up but uh, just allowing interestingly just allowing them to be their own movies like not reiterating the origin for that first one would have been a good idea not Desperately looking forward to a bunch of spin-offs in the second one would have been a good idea. But there are elements in all those movies, good and bad, which are strong to this day. And again, this one movie just tightens up those strengths and makes them brighter. So I'm 
that's why this kind of filmmaking really just energizes me because it makes the past and the future as well as the present brighter, easier to see, clearer. And for goodness sake, we need more clarity right now. Yeah, the the fact that Garfield gets to gets to really like do something other than just try and fit himself into like the the box where they want the franchise to go. Yeah. That they they give him some real space even though it's in a small part and like I was on record as both hating the amazing Spider-Man movies and being like man Garfield whatever Tobey Maguire should make that catch because again <laughs> I was assuming that they were just going to come out of the portals in the Statue of Liberty scene at the very end but like by the time we got there I was like yes go Garfield get it yes and like they <laughs> they 200% sold that and so like if if I can like be so on board for that character like I can only imagine how happy people are who were, you know, 10, 12 years younger than me who grew up with mm. Amazing and now get this. And the fact that we get, like, this multi-generational thing of, like, you know, payoff for Toby, Gen growth X. for Garfield and Holland. Millennials it's and astounding. Gen Z. Yeah, it's, and, and the fact that it is, like, it's all of this, you know, this supportive growth that we're seeing in this one thing that is, it, it wraps the audience up in it. And so, like the the, I, I see why this is being received as such a positive collective experience. It's so perfect, by the way, that Garfield's uh, Spidey is the millennial Spidey because he gets blamed for everything and he gets called the worst. And he's so much better than everyone expects of him. He's a good boy. <laughs> They're good millennials, Brent. It's a good touch that, like, yeah, that Doctor Strange busts Holland's balls for not calling the admissions office, but like. No one told him he could do that. Like yeah. that's that's the thing. Like no one tells people wh how they're supposed to adult anymore. So I kind of get that. You millennials with your adulting, Austin. More than any superhero besides Batman, maybe Spider-Man is defined in the greater pop culture as a movie character, even more than pretty much any other medium. And this feels like the best tribute to that. That you could possibly ask for. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think this trilogy has ended on such a note to really, really cement itself as the strongest of mm. any Spider-Man that's, that's been developed so far. And I think that's largely because this movie picks up on the strengths that existed in the previous versions and allows those to shine and also positions the story into a place where you get the core Peter Parker Spider-Man type of story whereas he has kind of been a bit of an MCU sideshow up to this point I think this is really a a Spider-Man movie through and through first and foremost and I am still just endlessly amazed that I didn't feel like it was a cheap um, knockoff of Spider-Verse because Spider-Verse is one of my favorite movies of all time Agreed. and yeah this definitely has a lot of elements in common and yet it is still definitely not a cheap cash-in or at least not just a cheap cash-in it is doing something else with it it is not trying to do the same thing and succeeding slightly. It's trying to do a different thing and succeeding with flying colors, in my yeah. opinion. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, I really like the MCU Spider-Man films. The whole trilogy is great. 
but they do kind of feel the first two feel a little bit like Spider-Man is being defined by his relationship to the rest of the cinematic universe. And this is a movie that feels like a celebration of Spider-Man as a character. And they achieve that by drawing in so many different influences from all across Spider-Man's history, not just the movies, but Mm -hmm. the video game and the comics. And it's it's a really fantastic celebration of what makes Spider-Man, I think, one of the greatest superhero characters to have ever been written. The MCU was finally taking in Spider-Man. Uh, it, that was like the number one things that fans wanted. It was just like, can you please, can, you, can we have Peter come back home? Can he in- interact with Iron Man, the, the Avengers? And they gave us that. And then very quickly, because uh, fans are fans, they then complained, oh, he's too reliant on the Avengers. Oh, he's just Iron Man Jr. Uh, this, <laughs> this, and that. So we entered into this trilogy by MCU very telling a great story on how Peter was with the Avengers. And we are ending this trilogy with a great story on how Peter is now going to be on his own. I also love the meta commentary on these three Peter Parkers all liking each other, approving of each other, and supporting each other. So we can pretty much stop squabbling over which one was best now. That's not an issue for them. School of Movies is kept supplied with web cartridges on a monthly basis by our Patreon. And our top tier sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finn Barnicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow. Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Okay, so before we go, can our esteemed guests let people know where they're, the stuff they're most proud of can be found? We'll start with Brendan. Well, you can uh, uh, read a review I wrote of Spider-Man No Way Home on normannerd.blogspot.com, but I'm also a uh, guest on the Matinee Heroes Catch Me If You Can episode that drops this Christmas, so uh, keep keep an ear out for that. That should be out by now, but this this will be going out uh, early New Year's. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mackenzie and Nathan, you can decide who, who gets to talk about which. All right, so uh, we have a couple of podcast projects that we're a part of. We do, uh, as mentioned on top, Rainbow Connection and Video Game the Movie the Podcast. Video Game the Movie the Podcast is a review of all of the video game movies that have been made. So if you want to hear me suffer, you can go <laughs> listen to that. I'd also like to quickly plug my Instagram. If you're interested in seeing any of my visual art, I'm working on at Kenzie Phoenix. I do a lot of fake mon stuff, which may or may not be of interest. We are also involved in another podcast called Dice Weave, where we play a RPG in the Mass Effect universe. Uh, it's a lot of fun. 
you can check that out wherever you find podcasts. It'll be a good time. Nathan is Turian James Bond. All right. <laughs> nice. Uh, Name. Uh, the thing that I update the most regularly is my Twitter mm-hmm. at Name the Nerd. Mostly I'm just uh, posting shiny Pokemon that I find. Um, but uh, the project that I'm most proud of is a YouTube channel called uh, The Super Sibs. It's a Let's Play channel that I run with my brother. Um, it's currently on hiatus while we wait for our editor to finish uh, his his uh, college. Um, he's going to school for editing. He's our, uh, our second brother. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, there's some really funny stuff on there that uh, people can go check out. And Austin. Yeah. <clears throat> uh- People can find my work at uh, Wits Writing on Tumblr. That's W-I-T-S hyphen writing.tumblr.com. The thing I'm most proud of recently is probably my in-depth breakdown of Starkid Productions, The Guy Who Didn't Like Musicals, which is a hilarious meta horror musical that I highly recommend to anyone. After I see Matrix Resurrections, I'm going to be writing a piece about my personal relationship with those movies because I have been on quite a journey with how I view those movies throughout my life. Hmm. And on that very note, Sharon and I will be back next week with our conclusion of the James Cameron season with Avatar, followed by diving into the Matrix sequels. Uh, We're going to do them in the order (laughs) four, two, and three. For, for, for maximum uh, reflection <laughs> ability uh, especially since three is going to be the hardest for me to uh, talk about the merits of so like, like, yeah we'll, we'll do that one last and maybe talk about Have some me in. Uh, I'll talk to... about the merits I like that movie <laughs> <laughs> same okay we will come to that big metal bridge covered in robot corpses when we come to it until then happy new year I've been Alex Shaw I've been Sharon Shaw and School's out. <laughs>